You're listening to the Legal Talk Network. Hello, I'm Bob Ambrogi. And I'm Monica Bay. We've been writing about law and technology for more than 30 years. That's right. During that time, we've witnessed many changes and innovations. Technology is improving the practice of law, helping lawyers deliver their services faster and cheaper. Which benefits not only lawyers and their clients, but everyone. And moves us closer to the goal of access to justice for all. Tune in every month as we explore the new legal technology and the people behind the tech here on Law Technology Now. Hello, this is Dan Linna. Welcome to Law Technology Now on the Legal Talk Network. My guest today is Stephen Poor, Chair Emeritus of Seifroth Shaw. Steve previously served as chair of the firm for 15 years, from 2001 to 2016. Currently, Steve serves as an advisor to the firm's leadership and is an executive sponsor of strategic initiatives focused on innovation and growth. Steve, welcome to the show. Thank you, Dan. Before we get started, we'd like to thank our sponsor, Headnote. Headnote helps lawyers get paid faster with their compliant e-payments and accounts receivables automation platform. To learn how to get paid quicker and more efficiently, visit them at headnote.com. That's headnote.com. So, Steve, let's just jump right in. And what I'd like you to do is, can you just tell us a little bit about your time as a practicing lawyer and how you ended up becoming Seifarth's chair in 2001? Uh, Sure. Well, I started, I've been with Seifarth my entire career. So I started right out of law school in 1980. uh, And I became a labor and employment lawyer, uh, mostly a trial lawyer doing employment discrimination matters. After a while, I began to serve as the chair of the labor and employment law department um, back in the late 90s and and then moved into the firm's executive committee. You know, one, they asked me to take over as chair managing partner of the firm from the fellow who'd done it for about 20 years before me. Uh, you ask how that happened. You know, I missed a meeting, and you know that's that's the best that's the answer I can give give you. Um, you know, I'd had a lot of experience leading up to that in various functions of the firm. I'd I'd been the executive sponsor for marketing. I helped in the technology group. I ran the labor and employment law department, which at the time was and still is the firm's largest practice area. So I'd had a pretty diverse background in the business related to law. So. You know, as I said, I missed the meeting and yeah, got the and, nod. And so you're the one who got the, got I got the assignment. The nod, yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh well, you know, there's so many things I'd love to talk with you about today. We're gonna really kind of focus narrow in on innovation and technology sure. and uh particularly Seifarth's application of Lean Six Sigma to legal services delivery. And it was under your leadership that that began. Right. And I mean, how did that all come about? Well, there's a long story, but I'll give you the short version. Um which is if you go back, we really started our lean journey in about 2004. So we're talking 15 years ago. And if you go back to that period of time, you have to understand what the legal industry was doing, which was those early 2000s were boom times for the legal industry, kind of not unlike now. But if you look at the dynamics behind the economics of the business, the industry wasn't delivering services more efficiently. People weren't being more productive. They weren't devising new service delivery mechanisms. 
they were simply charging more. That's how they made more money, mm -hmm. you know, and you raised your rates and you passed the additional profits along to your partners and voila, everything was good. And I guess I was, I was certainly significantly younger back then and I was certainly more naive. I couldn't understand how that business model could continue to be viable. Mm -hmm. I, I couldn't mm -hmm. understand how the legal industry was immune from sort of basic economic laws that affect every other business. Why shouldn't you have to get better and faster and more efficient to justify continuing your, your pricing structures? And so I was scratching around and I had a lot of prior experience with the firm, sort of playing around with technology and We'd started a number of ancillary businesses and training and all sorts of things. So we had a we had a history of sort of playing around and experimenting. But I I read a book on Six Sigma is the sort of the the, yeah? the, the baseline of it. Uh, and I get asked the name of the book and I don't remember at this point. <laughs> um, but I was dumb enough to think, why wouldn't that work in the legal industry? A question I now understand the answer to, but at the time it seemed like a question to ask. So I, I reached out to one of my partners, Lisa Damon in Boston. She was at the time the managing partner of our Boston office, and we put in place a couple of um, couple of small test cases, pilot programs. One around CMBS financing, the the level of financing that ultimately brought the whole economy down, <laughs> uh, and uh, our own conflict system. And we found out that we achieved significant improvement in efficiency and margin and effectiveness in both examples um, to the point where we became convinced that, in fact, this methodology and this way of thinking could work in the legal industry. Um, and so that started us down a path that the firm is still on today. Well, let's go. You initially... Uh, said, you kind of asked yourself, well, why couldn't this apply to the legal industry? Uh, I mean, what do you think you've learned about how maybe it's different in legal? How, how I mean, what, what should we be thinking about to address to kind of make the most of in applying lean, lean Six Sigma to legal? Yeah. So when we first started, we worked with Six Sigma Academy to sort of put together the program and they, they looked at us like we were crazy. And, and we started with sort of full bore Six Sigma and then brought lean thinking into it. And, and we brought all the jargon, all the methodologies, all the, all the stuff that associated with it. And we learned through painful experience that that full bore application, particularly with the jargon around it, the language around it, really doesn't resonate with lawyers. Um, and so we, we had to adapt and modify that way the way of thinking and the way of presenting that way of thinking in a way the lawyers could understand. There's a there's a change management challenge associated with this because you're asking people to think differently about the way they're they've been practicing all these years and to deliver services differently. And people take a lot of pride in the artisan nature of the craft and its magic and all this kind of stuff. And you have to you have to adapt the core concepts of lean thinking and six sigma so that it can so that lawyers can be receptive to it and hear what what you're saying you're not changing the methodology and you're not changing the underlying basis of it but how you talk about it. lawyers are great focused on language right mm -hmm. you know so how you talk about it how you validate their 
uh, willingness to take a risk by changing it. And at the end of the day, for us, probably the most important voices in the whole process over the years were our clients. Um, because we would we, we had a number of client allies with us on this journey, ranging from Caterpillar to DuPont and et cetera, et cetera. And the more our clients would speak up and say, this is what we're looking for, particularly after we hit the recession. Uh, so remember, we started in 04, the, the, the boom times, 07, 08, 09 come along, and it's a very different world. And so more and more client voices are being heard, and that helped the change dynamic as well. Okay. Well, that last part, there's a bunch of things you just said there that I want to follow up on, but that last part is interesting because I've been having some conversations with folks lately, and there's, uh, I think the latest Altman Wiles survey actually talked about this too, about that one of the chief concerns is, uh, as far as threats to law firms, is a downturn. And some people right. are kind of asking, well, what will happen to innovation programs if there's a downturn? Um, I mean, I suppose it could result in and some innovation programs getting chopped, or maybe it might result in a redoubling of efforts on on engaging in in some of the change that some would say needs to happen in the industry. Yeah, that's an interesting question. And and our experience in the last recession was that it worked to Seifarth's advantage to be able to say to the clients who were struggling with legal budgets are struggling with the legal services, their companies were having down years, to be able to say, we have been approaching this differently now for four or five years. We've got experience in this. We're not just inventing this stuff as a result of the recession. And that was a real advantage to the firm back in the day. And I think, you know, look, every firm will respond differently to the next downturn. Let me put to you this way. If if it's an innovation program, what I hear when you say that is something sitting over in a little box, you know, yeah, that you unwrap yeah. and take out and yeah. the marketing guys play with. Um, if if it's just an innovation program sitting over there, it's a high likelihood of getting chopped in the short term. If you have ingrained innovation, if you've ingrained a different way of thinking into the DNA of the firm and through the way of culture, that's not going to get chopped and that's going to that's going to resonate with clients and i think the firms that do that and are doing that are going to come out of the next downturn whenever that may be in much better shape they're going to enter it in better shape and they're going to come out of it in better shape well, I think that highlights one of the misunderstandings about what lean thinking is all about. And I mean, a lot of what we did at Michigan State and we continue to do is kind of connected to the Toyota way and, mm -hmm. and uh, thinking about um, creating learning organizations, really changing the right. culture. A lot of people kind of just see it as, oh, you map processes, eliminate waste. This is very boring kind of like commoditization of legal services. I mean, uh, how, how do you really get the lawyers in a firm, though, to, to buy into this and, and go through that change management process, this sort of heavy lifting we're talking about to create that sort of change? Well, I've only got 15 years, so I don't, <laughs> I don't know completely the answer to that yet. Uh -huh. um, you, you do it, first you have to recognize it's a long-term challenge, that you're not going to get everybody in a firm to buy into anything all at once. I don't care how obvious yeah. it is. They're lawyers, and therefore yeah. they're and, you know, a, f a few things I would suggest is, one, you have to understand your audience. Lawyers are a unique breed, you know. You read the Larry Richards stuff on lawyer uh -huh. brain, you know, on resiliency. You know, you think about the dynamics. that the, the, They're adverse to risk. They're adverse to change. 
you have to recognize that audience that you're not going to change their dynamics. You have to change their hearts and their minds. And so you have to play within that framework over a period of time. And you also have to think about who are going to be your champions, who are going to be your advocates for change, because you have to have support from firm leadership. It has to be clear that this is something that's important to the organization, not just something we're doing for marketing purposes. Uh, but that in and of itself is not enough. We were fortunate to have partners who early on had success in serving their clients and growing their practices uh, or, or becoming more efficient in their administrative responsibilities. And we were fortunate to have clients who saw what we were doing come in and speak to our partners. And so we, we gradually won people over sort of one person at a time. Uh, and people are in different places in their practices. You know, you talk about, you know, commodity and, and yes, this is a way of thinking that applies to high volume practices, but the core concepts of trying to be more effective and more efficient with your time and to really understand root causes and understand applies to even the highest level practice. You, you consistently hear clients say, well, I'm willing to pay $1,500 an hour yeah. for work that's worth $1,500 an hour. Okay. How do you make sure that what that the time you're spending at $1,500 is that magic that's worth that much money? Well, lean thinking is one way to accomplish that, the way we use it. And yes, it involves process maps and yes, it involves data, but it's really a way of thinking from the client's perspective. I refer to it as thinking about it from outside in. You know, you're looking and you're trying to put yourself in your client's shoes and saying, okay, how do I help them solve this problem in the most efficient, effective way possible? And I will tell you some of the greatest lawyers I've worked with in the firm or elsewhere, they do this instinctively. They push back the notion of putting a label on it. But when you ask them how they're doing a problem, they'll draw you what I would call a process map, not to them. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But it's 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 interesting, and if you, the more you can scale that behavior and that way of thinking, the more success you're going to have, and it, and it applies to all areas of practices and all 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 value dimensions within the industry. Yeah, yeah, I'm glad you brought up that point because too frequently we we tend to think of process improvement and project management as only applying to commodity practices mm -hmm. or or basic work, and oh, there's this certain bet the company type of work that to which innovation technology doesn't really apply. We just let the specialist lawyers handle it, and it's like you would think, well, wait, this would be even more important in those areas that we apply these same principles in those areas. Yeah, and to be and to be truly great in those areas, that's a way of thinking that you either have to have come to naturally and you can rebel against the label being put on, <laughs> as I said, or you have to learn it. Um, because if you're delivering, if you're dealing with a high value proposition for the client, they're expecting high value legal representation. And yes, that involves really smart people with, with years of experience doing things that you can't map out and doing things you can't. But None of it stands alone. It's, these these are practices that aren't one hour here and one hour there. They're talking about large mega deals or large lawsuits or you know sophisticated tax structuring. Okay, understanding how to think through those problems logically and efficiently is key to being able to justify the the money that you're charging. 
Yeah, yeah. Um, what what would you say about? I think when uh, I talk about process improvement, there's kind of a few different or innovation frameworks. There's a few different mm-hmm. flavors. Maybe people talk about. Uh, they talk about lean thinking. Talk about design thinking. Talk about project management. I mean, I can see a role for all three of those. Sometimes mm-hmm. we tend to just mush them all together. I mean, how do you kind of see it from your perspective as far as where you might think a, a law firm would start and and or any legal services delivery organization? Uh. Yeah, you hear you hear sort of all of that. I'd put project management off to the side. It's more a tool, mm-hmm. right? So you think about it, or at least the way we think about it now, having had experience in design thinking and process improvement and and, and various sorts of of methodologies. Is each one has its own role, all right? And so as you come to the first step, is to understand the problem you're trying to solve right? Am I trying to create something new? Am I trying to improve an existing process? You know, what's, what's the problem here? And I think a lot, our experience is a lot of people don't identify the right problem, right? Too many of these efforts are, are solutions in search of problems. Start for the problem first. Yeah. And then you can begin to think, okay, what, what methodology should I use to get to the, to the desired result? Design, design thinking works in certain. This is okay. You're you're starting from scratch. I'm trying to design a new process, a new service delivery area, or I'm trying to redesign an entire practice area, right? Or I've got an existing way people are delivering it, and the problem I have is that it's costing too much, or it's taking too long. The cycle times are are too long. You're going to use lean thinking. You're going to use um, Six Sigma lean to get to get you there. So it's about understanding the, the the purposes of each one of these methodologies and beginning to select which one applies as you get more sophisticated in your nature of problems. If you are talking about someone who's starting this process, you know, we started with lean, frankly, uh, and that's usually where I advise people to start because you've got ex- you've got incumbent lawyers doing things now delivering services to clients that you're trying to drive improvement, constant improvement, constant learning in the organization. Design thinking is another step after that. Okay. What about is, what can you tell us that you've learned at Cyfarth as far as the kind of people you need to hire to support this and then the training that everyone needs? So if I'm part of a practice group, we want to implement this. We think it can make a difference. What do you think the lawyers who are handling the cases need to learn? And what kind of allied professionals do you need to really support a group in, in doing these things? Yeah, so I'll give you a little context. Um, of course, when we started in 04, there really weren't people to hire. Yeah. I mean, yeah. nobody was doing this, so there weren't folks to hire. So we sort of created a legal project management office. We use some folks internally in the organization. And we, we slowly over the years began to build out a combination of process engineers, project managers, legal technologists, legal designers. And we, we come at it from a belief that there's, there's an important role the allied professionals have to play in the organization. It's, they're not non-lawyers. They're allied professionals. Steal Bill Henderson uh-huh, phrase. Uh-huh. Right? Um, and they are experts in their field. And what lawyers need to understand and what we try to train lawyers to do is to how to think about how to get used to working in a in a hybrid working model. So you're working with uh, 
you know, various types of lawyers who are in different working relationships with the organization, different allied professionals, whether they be project managers or process engineers or legal technologists, to try to put together the right team, solve the problem for the client. So, so what do we need the lawyers to think about? Well, we need them to understand problem solving. We need them to understand what are the core skill sets these people bring to the table, when to reach out and tap their expertise, and when to listen to them and how to adapt to it. We, we don't need, we don't try to train everybody to be a full-born certified project right. manager. We're not trying to train everybody to code. Many of our people in these areas were lawyers, were trained as lawyers, mm-hmm. are now not practicing lawyers. Um, but, you know, we, we don't want our practicing lawyers to feel like they need to code to be able to su- succeed. We've got people who know how to code. Uh-huh, right? uh-huh. What we need are people who can listen to understand the client problem and begin to work with the right people to design solutions for the clients. Yeah. Well, I want to talk about technology a little bit here more as well. But one of the things I want to just, uh, you talked about having some pilots or being able to gather some data about lean uh, lean thinking and process mm-hmm. reengineering working. I mean, I've seen actually in the Altman Weil surveys, matter of fact, they talk about process reengineering and, and year over year, I've seen that. Uh, it's shown to be one of the most effective interventions to increase profitability, but yet very few firms are actually actually doing it. And when I bring up the example of Cyfarth, I mean, some people talk, well, ah, well, it's mixed, you know, mixed signals, whether how successful it's been, or, or they'll, some people will say, well, Cyfarth, that's an employment firm and that's a little bit different. I, I mean, I, I asked multiple questions there, I guess, but right, I, <laughs> uh, I mean, you know, what kind of metrics did you use internally to show that this was working? And what else would you say, I guess, to some folks maybe who are skeptics of this as far as um, your, why would you say it is something that can make a, a difference in improving, you know, better, faster, cheaper legal services? Well, I, we don't use the word cheaper. So I'll push back. <laughs> I'll push back on okay, that. Okay. Okay. Um, better and faster, certainly. Okay. Um, you did ask multiple questions in there. Let me try to try to sort of tease it apart a little bit. In terms of metrics, what we look at will depend upon the particular process or project mm-hmm. or effort that we're trying to do. But there, we're looking for improvement in sort of core metrics within the organization. So as I mentioned, the first two projects we had, one was a certain lending program where the precise numbers are lost in my memory at this point, but was was running basically at a loss. And we turned it into two things happened. We turned it into profitable business. And the client was so delighted that they began to give us larger size loans and deals to handle. So the business grew. So those metrics, which lawyers are used to looking at, hit every box lawyers were used to looking at. On the conflicts part, we measured the number of errors. We measured the cycle time. We put those up on the board to partners. And then we measured what happened after we went through the program. And and the numbers didn't just prove out, people felt it, right? Mm-hmm. Because they were yeah. putting stuff in and suddenly instead of things taking a week to turn around, they're getting turned around in a day or, or 10 hours. Uh, and we continue to build on that by trying to measure continual improvement depending on what the client's success looks like, depending on what the law firm's success looks like. You know, and as the skeptics look, I've learned that the industry is always looking for reasons to say something <laughs> different can't work. Right. And 
I'm happy with people being skeptics because that's just less firms for us to compete uh -huh. with in driving value to clients. Um, but if you're truly focused on what your clients need, they need you to be their business partner. And being their business partner means helping them succeed. And helping them succeed means solving problems for them in the most efficient, effective way possible. And it's very hard to argue with that. And if you can find a better way to accomplish that, that's great. I've yeah. got no problem with that. This is the way the firm Cypherth found mm -hmm. to it. It's not a path for everybody, but you know, a number of firms have, have gone down and had equal success. Yeah, yeah. Well, okay, so I want to shift to technology in a second, but I, I just wanted to first ask, a wrap up kind of a little bit on, on the process improvement and project management piece of this. Uh, I mean, I think, I really think one could argue, and I've explored just a few guests before, that that the lack of project management and lack of processes in the legal industry and in law firms could could be, or contribute to some of these broader problems that we have in the legal industry, like the lack of work-life balance, alcoholism, depression, lack of diversity, and so on. I mean, do you think that, do you do you have any data that you've been able to gather at Cypherth that not only is this better serving your clients, but that when you have processes in place and better project management, that it can actually improve the lives of the, the lawyers inside the firm as well? Boy, you're putting a lot on <laughs> lean thinking there, my friend. <laughs> well, you know, I, I there, mean, there I think, are drivers, there are pressures in the industry, yeah, you know, yeah. no matter what. I think yeah. I have a particular bugaboo about the way uh, services are priced and delivered. The hourly, I think the hourly yeah. rate pushes against all of these dynamics and creates a stressor as firms are trying to, they make their money by the hours people put in and, and you know, Lean thinking and lean approach, I think, helps people dramatically. But you know, as an industry wide, I don't think it's uh, it solves all the underlying problems that that you're that you're relating to, mm -hmm. um, because there's these are most lawyers in big law firms have been highly successful. They wouldn't be lawyers in big law firms. They're they're type A personalities. Mm -hmm. They're risk adverse. You know, they're they're in an environment of high achievers who are, you know, usually willing to be there on a Saturday or willing to work all night. And most firms still have high billable hour requirements. Those pressures don't are not going to be solved until you solve some of the underlying pricing structural issues mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. and uh, some of the competitive nature of the industry. Mm -hmm. uh, but you know the. To answer your question more specifically, I can't say that we've created metrics, happiness metrics. I, uh -huh. That's not something we've done. Uh -huh. That's an interesting. It's an interesting concept, but we do find that the what happens when you engage in this thinking is that it's inherently more collaborative, and people are working with other lawyers, they're working with other allied professionals, and they're working with their clients, and almost consistently that produces. A, a positive reinforcement for the lawyers involved. They like doing it. Yeah. Now, we haven't measured that. Okay. But it's, it's anecdotal, but it's, it's, I bet a lot of money that it's real. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I'd love to get more data on things like that and look at the effect on on laterals and retention, maybe uh, the potential there. But I don't know. That's my hypothesis. We'll see. There we have you to go. We'll, we'll try to test it out for you there, my friend. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, before we continue our interview with Steve Poor, Chair Emeritus of Cypherth Shaw, 
We're going to take a quick break to hear a message from our sponsor. Hey, law firms. Getting paid is fantastic, but dealing with accounts receivable is such a pain. What if there was a better way? Enter Headnote, an industry-leading compliant e-payments and AR automation system. Their unique blend of features cuts through the noise and helps you get paid 70% faster. Skip the paper checks, spreadsheets, and awkward calls due to overdue clients. Get paid faster with less effort. Visit headnote.com for more information. And we're back. Thank you for joining us. We're with Steve Poor, Chair Emeritus of Seifroth Shaw. Steve, we've been talking a lot about lean thinking. And uh, you also mentioned when we first started talking that, of course, you had technology projects going on as well when you first took over as chair. And, uh, you know, it's interesting. I see some of the discussion these days. It seems to really be this binary discussion about technology versus processes or service design. And I think most people pretty clearly see these things as kind of fitting together in a lot of ways. Um, Tell me about how the technology projects you've been able to implement, like what's the connection to lean and what kind of opportunities when you go through lean and improving processes, managing projects, what kind of additional opportunities do you open up for using technology? Sure. Well, so some of the technologies in, in, in my current role at the firm, I work with our tech R and D function. And so there's mm-hmm. basically 15 or so of us, uh, developers, solution, uh, software architects, legal solution architects, et cetera. Um, and we've been playing around with robotic process automation, various machine learning technologies, document automation, collaboration technologies, et cetera. And there's a, there's a correlation in thinking as you think about process engineering, as you think about lean thinking or design thinking, whichever particular methodology you happen to be in, as you're, as you're trying to think about the various components, you know, what are the, what's the right team of people you need to solve this particular problem? What's the right process methodology you need to knit those people together? And how does technology play a role in that, either in supplementing what people are doing, augmenting what they're doing, becoming a key part of the process? So it's for us, it was a natural evolution as a, as a way of thinking of all the various components and how we can put them together to move technology and technology solutions into it. Um, and as technology has continued to advance and become more, ever more interesting in terms of what it can do, it becomes a important driver in finding solutions, sometimes standalone and sometimes in conjunction with process reengineering and sometimes in, in redesigning whole ways of thinking and delivering services. So there's, for us, there's a, there's a direct connection. And I know that one of the efforts behind the whole Seifroth Lean initiative was mapping various processes. And last I'd heard, I think there were over a thousand process maps. That... I've lost track, something <laughs> like that, yeah. And and I guess my understanding was is that, so you have these maps and, and it's not just a map of the process, but now you've got knowledge guides and, and doc template documents. Right. I mean, to me that... I mean, you're laying the foundation there for being able to say how you can start tying in more advanced technologies with these process maps. I mean, how are you using these maps? Like, where is that? If, if I'm a new hire at Cyfarth, like, how might I engage with these? Is it actually embedded in the technology you now at some point, kind of? Yeah, or? it's it's embedded so, so it lives on people's desktop to mm-hmm. the extent they want it to live. And you've sort of described it correctly. You know, there are, 
there are process maps and they have ornaments hanging off of them that are, you know, they could be documents, they could be training modules, they could be all sorts of things. It's really a knowledge management mm -hmm. system is frankly mm -hmm. what it is. Mm -hmm. um, from a technology standpoint, what, what we're looking for, what are the applications of advanced technologies that the technology I was described sort of is we've been around for a long time, yes, you know, and mm -hmm. it's we've been using it for many years. But as we think about advanced technologies, what we begin to think about is how how can technology create a an additional value for the client offering? So it might be, you know, through software robotics that you are taking steps out from a process, a very classic lean way of thinking, you know, mm -hmm. and, you know, where you're moving, you know, data from, you know, one field to another field, or you're moving information through the system. Instead of having people do that, you can have software robotics do that. To machine learning, where you're training the software to extract key pieces of information that lawyers in turn can interpret and apply and analyze instead of looking at 4,000 documents, they're looking at clauses from 200 documents. Those are examples of how you use technology. And so, yes, it correlates to process maps, but I also think in most cases, we don't really rely that much on process maps for thinking about what we're currently doing because we're trying to understand capabilities and then we think about capabilities and we think, okay, what problems are, are there where this would be a solution to that particular problem? And sometimes the answer is there are none. Okay, then we mm -hmm. need that particular technology to go away or go work in another field or go to somebody smarter who can figure it out. But yeah, so that's how we sort of approach our technology development. People bring us problems. We've understood the technology and we're beginning to build out a portfolio of solution sets to think, okay, we can incorporate this. But rarely is it just a standalone where, you know, we don't just make software and, you know, go install it and everything's fine. It's, it's what's the business problem? How do we create a solution? First question is, are there solutions that don't involve technology? And then, okay, what role does technology have to play? So one of the things that I'm hearing a lot about the conversations these days is pretty much the, the scope of AI seems to be really increasing. Everyone's just calling everything AI. Yeah. It's really irritating, <laughs> yes. And, and one of the examples that I see is where just um, what we would have called data analytics or even descriptive statistics, maybe it's like mm -hmm. people are calling it AI now. And um, I know you were a litigator. I was a litigator. Right. And uh, when I first started teaching at, at Michigan, I was teaching negotiation and I was teaching at Michigan State. And, and I really thought that we'd be by now see people using data in litigation a lot more and trying to make predictions, uh, time to resolution, outcomes, things like that. Craig Glidden wrote a good article with, with Mark Victor. He's at General Motors now, but he was at ConocoPhillips. Mm -hmm. I'm not really seeing, I don't know, I guess I haven't seen a lot of uptake on that. I mean, it, nor I, uh, and, and it's an interesting dynamic. And so you, you think, and so you ask yourself, why is that? And, I've sort of sorted through to a few reasons. I don't consider them particularly good reasons. One is lawyers have a belief that they know everything and they don't need <laughs> mm -hmm. these tools to to help enhance their learning. And I hope the generation of lawyers you're training and turning out into mm -hmm. the mm -hmm. workplace will, will approach it differently. 
But there's also fundamental challenges in, it's not the analytics part of the data, it's the data part of the yeah. data, you know? Yeah. And so you, what do you want to know? You want predictive analytics are going to tell you, okay, am I going to win or lose this case? You're not going to get that, right? There's so many, there's so many variables associated with this and you still have a hard time getting, we're talking about litigation, you're still having a hard time getting complete access to, I mean, settlements are usually confidential. Mm -hmm. What's the value of most cases that have been resolved? Nobody knows, mm -hmm. right? Because it's confidential. And that's that's really one of the data points that people want to know. What's the value of this case? Well, 90% of the cases settle within this range in this particular period of time. It's hard to get that underlying data. Uh, I think, you know, a few businesses have begun to sort of crack that nut a little bit, like Machina, et yeah. cetera, yeah. you know? And, and I think they're doing some really cool stuff. But until you get clean data and you get data that's readily accessible, and what's interesting to me is, you know, I've always wondered why clients haven't been willing to require their law firms to pool data. There's all sorts of issues around mm -hmm. the ability to, to commingle data and from client confidences and can you ethically do it and can you not? But if the clients are saying, we want this data pooled and fed back to us, it's going to happen. Yeah, yeah. And I don't quite get why. Nobody seems to be doing that. Yeah, yeah. At least not to my knowledge. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't know of it either. And I would love to see more of a push for that to happen. I mean, right. I think it's it's easy to say client confidences are the, the obstacle, but yeah, there's got to be ways you can anonymize that, it, sure. and there's, there's ways of, yeah. there are ways of doing it. And you're right, people do call the data analytics part AI, which is just drives me crazy. <laughs> well, yeah, it's it's really interesting the the terminology uh, in this space. I think that that once we kind of get more broad agreement and and start being more precise, I guess, about the way we're describing what we're doing, uh, can be another way to help kind of speed the adoption of of. Yeah, you 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 begin to think about you know what the, what are the barriers to adoption within the space, and there are. There are barriers for in-house counsel and there are barriers for law firms. Uh, and, you know, you can come up with sort of five or six sort of key barriers in each sphere. But one of them is the point you're making, which is understanding what we're talking about. Yeah. Okay? Understanding, you know, AI does not mean, you know, robots coming to sort of you know, throw us all out the window and begin to advise clients. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about different types of technology, different types of data analytics. You know, if you look at the streams that comprise AI, it's all sorts of different, you know, neural networks and machine learning and, you know, robotic process automation. And putting broad marketing labels on it so that we can attract people to the seminar doesn't help garnering understanding. And if lawyers don't understand something, they either dismiss it or they fear it. And so the more people can understand at least what we're talking about when we come to talk about technology, I think helps break down at least one of the barriers. Yeah. Uh, well, I think, and, and going back to the being data-driven piece of it, um, and, uh, you know, I, I asked the question about prediction, but even a simpler question is just, I mean, I did a lot of troubled supplier litigation, and I know when I was practicing, shame on me, I wasn't, 
capturing the small data about right. cases and and just even using creating an Excel spreadsheet and keeping track of some of this stuff and being able to tell the client, yeah, we've done twenty of these for you. And you know. right, lawyers don't do that. No. And you know, so you begin to think about okay, what are the data fields we need to capture to spit back? Right. Let's forget the predictive. What's the outcome of the case going to be? You know, what's anticipated closure time? You know, what? How do you close cases? You know, compared to what the industry closed cases. That's the information, at least in the federal courts, you could get, right? Mm -hmm. When's the order dismissing the case? It requires lawyers to actually, in their own internal systems, to close the matter. Mm -hmm. Well, some are better about that than others, mm -hmm. you know? And so you get you get to these very real, they, they seem like nitpicking, but if you're not getting clean data, you're not able to produce the kind of useful information that lawyers need or that or that clients would, I think, be entitled to expect. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think a related question that, I mean, well, how do we produce more of that data? And, and, and this relates to what we're talking about here, just I think on the small data side, but then also as bullish as I am on, you know, we see technology, the way it's changing every other industry, I think it can have a huge impact in the legal industry, but we have this big problem where we don't have these same kind of feedback loops. If you're Amazon or you're Netflix, you display five movies to Steve and you know if he clicked on one of them, you get right. immediate feedback. Right. In the legal industry, there's so many places where we do lots of stuff as lawyers and there's never, like there, we know the X variable, like we did something, but we don't know what happened as a result of doing anything. Yeah, I wish I had an answer for that. Um, but it, that's, a real, that's a real problem. Um, because until, if you, if you sort of think about the corollary field of diversity within the profession, you know, Progress is being made. It's too slow. Uh, it's too spotty. Mm -hmm. um, but part of the reason progress has been made is that clients are insisting on seeing measurement statistics around mm -hmm. the diverse teams being fielded and in, with increasing granularity, you know, not just what's the makeup of the team, but who's got what responsibility, who's got billing responsibility, et cetera. And those measurement tools can affect behavior. Uh, now, it's, it doesn't solve this particular problem overnight, but it, it does change behavior. And so as clients begin to ask for more statistical information, as, as um, what I hope are new generations of lawyers are coming into decision-making roles within corporations that are more amenable to data and are more accessible to data, as they begin asking for it, that in turn will be the biggest driver of change within the industry. Yeah. Well, you know, so related to all of this, as far as reasons to innovate, and um, I mean, it seems to me that there are opportunities in law firms to innovate and use that to increase revenue and, and good reasons to do it even just for their own bottom line. But thinking broader than that and thinking about our obligations as lawyers and, and for anyone in the legal profession generally, I mean, we know that there's a lack of access to legal services, justice systems that need to be improved. I mean, that's just here in the United States. We think globally, the opportunities uh, to improve rule of law, things like that. I mean, I know Cypherth has done some work with legal aid organizations, mm -hmm. Cypherth Lean. Um, I mean, is that a bridge too far to say that we also have an obligation to be doing these things because of the broader impact it can have? And or, or do you think there is a connection between those things? I do not think it's a bridge too far. And, and at the firm, we have worked a lot with various legal aid organizations to try to 
help them think about how they can maximize their ability to serve their constituents. Um, now, there are all kinds of real-world barriers out there in terms of funding. You think about, okay, technology can solve this problem. And there's some very cool work being done in the A to J space on technology, but it requires people to have up-to-date computers, and that requires money. Mm-hmm. Um, and you get into arguments about, you know, people who, you know, is there a divide between people who can afford to go in and get a human being as a lawyer versus talking to a computer? Kind of argument being mm-hmm. getting information online or through a computer if you've got that technological resource available is better than not having anything at all. You know, I, my oldest daughter is a public defender. She mm. tries capital murder cases down mm. in Mississippi. Oh, wow. And yeah. And so I sort of firsthand know some of the challenges. Yeah. You know, people who, who, who contribute their livelihood to this area have. And Technology can be a part of the solution, but underlying funding and willingness to to approach this incredibly important issue is uh, is important. I mean, you probably read uh, a couple of years ago the the Future of Law uh, study put out by the ABA, mm-hmm. yes, which mostly mm-hmm. dealt with access to justice issues yeah. and some of the numbers, none of which I remember, were just appalling. Yeah, yeah. And so I do think we've got an obligation as an industry, as a group of professionals that have have financially, by and large, done extremely well practicing law, to think of how these uh, techniques and what we've learned can be used for broader access to justice issues. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, so a a related question, uh, a question that's related to this, I'm sure you've saw kind of what's unfolding a little bit in California, and of course Mm -hmm. there's been a lot of discussion about changes to regulation for a while. Um, you know, I certainly pay attention to that, but then sometimes I worry that that's a little bit of a distraction that, um, Hey, there's so many things we can be doing right now to improve, but, um, but obviously that would be, I mean, that would really change the landscape of a state like California and other states. I mean, what are your thoughts kind of on, on what's happening out there? And yeah, so it's really interesting to watch Uh what's happening. Mm -hmm. Um, and your guess is as good as mine as (laughs) what the ultimate result will be. Mm -hmm. Uh, but if California changes the rules, in the way they're talking about it, that's a major change because, mm-hmm. you know, California is often viewed as another country, but the reality <laughs> is yeah. it sets a lot of standards for the rest of the country to follow. Now, will every state follow it? No, probably not, but you suspect New York probably will, key major legal markets will. And that has salutary effects on the access to justice issue we're talking about in, in my judgment, but it also has corollary issues about, okay, what does that mean for the big four mm-hmm. practicing law yeah. in, the, in, the, in the states? Yeah. You know, do they now start snapping up law firms as they've mm-hmm. done elsewhere in the world? Answer, probably so. Mm-hmm. Think about the capital they have to deploy for technology mm-hmm. and process improvement and everything else. It's sort of, the numbers are startling when you begin to think about the size of the big four and the capital they have to deploy. So we're talking about potentially a very big mm-hmm. issue and one that, that where the changes, nothing in this industry changes immediately. I mean, if you if you look at the UK and the changes when they made their code changes to allow non-lawyers to invest or practice, it took a number of years before that really began mm-hmm. to pick up some steam. Uh, but it ultimately did. Same pattern will probably repeat itself here. So it's it's a really interesting thing. People should be watching. 
Yeah. 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 So it'll be very interesting to see as that continues to unfold. Well, so we're coming close to the end of our time here, but I had a couple of additional questions I wanted to ask. Um, So first of all, what, I mean, there's a lot of discussion about that. It's really the clients that are pushing things forward today. What do you think it is that clients in large corporate legal departments really expect from their lawyers and and law firms today? You know, anytime you try to paint with a broad brush Mm -hmm. like that, you run the risk of getting it wrong because it's, it's not a monolithic industry. But I think increasingly they're expecting you to be, help them solve the problems that they have. And they could be budgetary problems. They could be just pure, rarely is it a pure legal problem. Mm-hmm. These are business problems that clients have. Mm-hmm. And I think their most valued law firm relationships are with firms that have the ability to come in and say, we understand your business problem and we will work with you to find a solution. Even if it means we wind up billing fewer hours, even if we wind up lowering your cost of service, because there's at the end of the day, there's something in it for us, which is a larger and deeper relationship. I think that's what most clients want. It manifests itself in different ways. We get, we see in an RFP process, you see all sorts of issues, questions these days around technology. Diversity is an important issue. Different pricing structures are an important issues. So they're looking for firms that are not just, you know, we bill by the hour, we send you for fees rendered. Thank you. Have a nice day. And it hasn't been that way for a while. Yeah. Yeah. We just mentioned billable hour too. Like, so do you, I mean, there's a lot of debate about billable hour. I think there's some data and there's a sense from anecdotes that there is this slow shift away and we are seeing more alternative fee arrangements. Slow being the operative term. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and so it's, and it's hard to, to, well, when you see companies like Microsoft saying, they, I think it was 95% of their matters, maybe Something it was like, yeah, yeah, like yeah, yeah. yeah. So, yeah. um, I mean, it's it certainly now I'm, I'm always someone who said that I don't think there's, I think for certain matters, there's nothing wrong with, with, um, and a matter of fact, I could think if you had well-defined transparent processes, if I'm a client, there might be certain places where I'd say, it's okay, we're going to do this by the hour. But I mean, we've had that occasion sometimes when yeah. we sit down with a client and say, okay, this is the way it's going to play itself out mm-hmm. here. The various permutations, here's what we think the time's going to be. You, you, do you want to reduce this to a flat fee? They'll go, no, we get it. Yeah. Yeah. You know? So, yeah. but you know, I do think that the billable hour in and of itself does not drive efficiency. There's just no argument to be made mm-hmm. that it does. Right. I mean, people are used to managing it. People are used to evaluating it. And they, they're comfortable with it, which is why it's hung on for so long. But you look at consulting firms, they do complicated business problem solving for their clients. They don't do it by and large on an hourly basis. They do it on, you know, project basis or different fee structures. It's not alternative fees for them. It's just the way they do business. And ultimately, I hope the legal profession moves to that as the standard and the alternative fee comes an hourly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So wrapping up here, uh, what would you say to, I mean, students in law school now or, or, or even young attorneys as far as the, the way that you're seeing the landscape evolve? I mean, some of the students I have right now, heck, 20 years from now, they're just going to be in the middle of their careers. And I think we'd both expect that the legal industry is going to look very different 20 years from yes. now. 
I mean, what would you say that they ought to be doing to start trying to prepare for this evolution in the legal industry so they can be successful attorneys who have a chance to make partner at, at firms like Seifarth and, you know, along the AMLA 100-200 generally? Right. I guess the first thing I would say to them is it's an exciting time to be moving in the profession. Yeah. There's obviously, there's change afoot and change is scary and uh, nobody quite knows what the profession is going to look like 20 years from now, but that's what makes it exciting. And the more you can approach it from a multidisciplinary standpoint, understanding at a high level technology and what it does and not being afraid of it, don't be afraid to learn. Don't be afraid to learn new methodologies, new technologies, and think about, you know, be curious. And I do, th I think probably the, you know, I have one of my favorite rants is on law schools who try to drive out intellectual curiosity, you know? <laughs> it's in the book, this is the way we think about it, you know, don't feel too far. I think intellectual curiosity is the most important trait new lawyers are gonna have because it's gonna allow them to think about new technologies and how they apply and think about how we can continue to raise our value to our clients, whether we're a corporate law firm, law lawyer or an, or an outside law firm. So keep an open mind. Don't be afraid of change. Don't be afraid of failing. Continue to learn and continue to push the envelope. Sounds like great advice. Uh, <laughs> easy for me to say, harder for them to do. All right. Well, thank you so much, Steve, for joining us today. This has been another edition of Law Technology Now on the Legal Talk Network. If you like what you've heard today, please rate us on Apple Podcasts. Join us next time for another edition of Law Technology Now. I'm Dan Linna, signing off. If you'd like more information about what you've heard today, please visit LegalTalkNetwork.com. Subscribe via iTunes and RSS. Find us on Twitter and Facebook, or download our free Legal Talk Network app in Google Play and iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Thank you.